Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here with another edition of Financial University, where we're going to discuss all things finance because oh, you're going to really want to know what's going on because according to Janet Yellen, we were never going to have another financial crisis in our lifetimes. Wow. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I think we might. With me today, a very good friend, dear friend from way back, Alistair McLeod, head of research at... Uh, gold money. So Alistair McLeod, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been far too long, Chris, far, far yes. too long. It's a delight to be with you again. And um, so we're reaching you. You must, uh, are you in London at the moment? Uh, well, actually I live um, in the West Country. So, um, you know, oh. it's beautiful Devon. Um, I mean, it really is lovely around here. So I'm not in the city environment and very pleased not to be. Well, good. So no, no, ULES cameras out your way yet? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Alistair, so much to dis- I don't think they ever will be, but anyway, I'll keep my fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. So there's so much to discuss. I, you know, I sort of opened with this idea there might be a financial crisis. Of course, I know you and I have been talking about these things for a long time. This is Finance University. What I'm trying to do is help people who really maybe don't have a solid grounding in economics or finance or who think, oh, it's just too complicated. I want to help get them up the curve. You need context. So before we get to the punchline of why we think there's a financial crisis, can we set the stage? You do such a wonderful job at this. I'm going to ask you to rewind. Can we go back to Bretton Woods? What was it? Why did it break or when did it break? And and I think we need that context to understand why we're here today. It's like the problems we have, the predicaments we face, they didn't happen because of a bad decision last week. Right. So so and if we have to rewind further than that, let me know. But that feels like a convenient starting point. Well, in the interest of brevity, we'll start in 1944. Then that's when that's when Bretton Woods was um, agreed uh really by i mean even russia agreed to it though they were not a, a signatory to it i mean they agreed to it but they didn't um you know join the system and um really it was that system that um made the dollar the international currency and the gold standard was available to central banks um who could swap their dollars for gold um at um at the fed or yeah, I mean, it would have been the Fed uh, or as opposed to the US Treasury, I think, at that stage. So um, that was the basis. So, uh, I mean, you started off, I can't remember the numbers, but uh, there's something like, I don't know, 26,000 tons of gold or something held in America. So this, I mean, this was absolutely solid. But of course, over the years, with all the exported dollars, um, you know, wars in Vietnam, Korea first, then Vietnam. So, you know, you had um, also um, trade deficits. Uh, Germany was, um, you know, gradually getting uh, accumulating gold uh, from her trade surpluses with the United States. So, you know, 
gradually this sort of pile of gold got frittered down and down and down and it got to a crisis really with the London gold pool which was set up in the 60s because the Americans really wanted to have some uh, some extra help if you like uh, to try and you know keep the lid on on on, on the gold price um, and um, the gold pool failed in the late 60s um, and uh, that was principally France saying you know what well, to hell with this you know we, we want we want gold not dollars and others admittedly it's it's not wasn't just just de Gaulle who has um, you know it has been blamed with this crime as it were against the dollar um, and then of course it, this led to um, the real crisis which was in 1971 when um, America's gold reserves fell to less than eight and a half thousand tons and at that stage President Nixon decided that um, he had to suspend the Bretton Woods agreement it's it remains suspended not ended suspended but for all practical purposes it's gone anyway so we can forget that and then um, from really 1971 uh, through to the early 1980s, uh, we had a, call it a period of settling down, I suppose, in the new fiat currency regime. And it was extremely uncomfortable. Um, nobody really trusted this new regime. And it was against that background that the uh, gold price went from $35 up to a high at one point of $850. Uh, I think that was in early 1980. Um, and in interest rates, in order to try and bring the situation under control, um, the Fed funds rate rose from around about 6% uh, um, in 1970 to a high of about 19% um, under Volcker, um, who just had to you know, just kill the whole thing. Since then, um, some sort of confidence has come back into fiat currencies. And this really explains why we had declining uh, inflation um, uh, on prices anyway, um, really from about 1980, from that interest rate peak, 1980, 81, all the way down to um, the uh, crisis, if you like, the Lehman crisis. And th this is when you and I were really first started, I think, um, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, talking together and you know we met I remember we met in Madrid and you know this was uh, the beginning of a very happy friendship I must say so so um uh it was really in the in the wake of that that we were having not so much a currency crisis but we were having more of a banking crisis I mean we had bank failures in this country we had bank failures in America we had German banks which needed to be consolidated because the, basically they were bust and they needed to be rescued. So you had all this sort of stuff going on. Cyprus went bust like the whole country and <laughs> was hung out to dry. Um, so, you know, at that stage, what happened was that gold started going hard, you know, up again, which really is a reflection of loss of purchasing power of the currencies rather than gold rising. And it probably got a bit overdone when it ran up to about 1840, I think, in around about August or September um, 2011. Um, that uh, bull market was killed by intervention in the markets. Um, and uh, so it wasn't really until about 2016 that things started moving up again. Um, the situation now, um, after the COVID incident, when uh, governments just threw money at the whole economy, they shut down the economies and basically paid everyone not to work, 
not to attend anything, not to go to the office. Um, the effect of that, of course, was highly, highly destabilizing for the currencies. It must be. Uh, and um, then on top of that, we had um, uh, the action against uh, Russia in the Ukraine, uh, which admittedly was started by Russia. But, you know, I mean, basically, we just threw caution to the winds and decided, to, you know, we really got to get the Russians. Uh, and <laughs> consequently, the Russians sat on the on, uh, you know, the supply of uh, of energy and drove up prices came off a little bit, but they're doing it again. So we now have a bookended situation. The first decade uh, of fiat currencies, pure fiat currencies, was very, very volatile in currencies, um, very destabilizing. Um, and somehow we managed to get through that. We had that long period, um, uh, really from about 1980 to uh, just a few years ago, uh, where the whole thing appeared to be relatively calm and stable okay there are a few banking crises and you know so what <laughs> that, that that happens but recently we have evidence that um these fiat currencies are becoming destabilized again and um this uh, brings in huge great problems because uh, over the period of declining interest rates over a long period of declining interest rates the amount of unproductive debt in everyone's economy has increased and increased and uh, not only that, but governments have thrown caution to the winds on their spending. And uh, as a result, um, virtually all governments now have debt to GDP ratios, which are you know sky high. I mean, you know, at levels which uh, economists previously would have said, well, you know, a fiat currency cannot survive this debt to GDP relationship. Um, you know, I think I think um, was it Kotlikoff? No, it wasn't Kotlikoff. I can't remember. There's another one. One of those very famous uh, American uh, economists who said Maybe that um, you've got it absolutely. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. He was saying that uh, anything over ninety percent uh, debt to GDP is sort of getting into a debt spiral. And I mean, guess what? That's what we're seeing now. I mean, just look at the uh, debt situation in the United States. I mean, you're well over a hundred percent debt to GDP on on government debt, and. Uh, um, we find that with rising interest rates, suddenly the interest rate bill in this fiscal year that's just ended at the end of September um, is sort of, I don't know, it'll probably turn out to be about 900 uh, billion or something like that. So what's the, you know, what's the interest bill going to be for the current, this new fiscal year? Well, I guess it's going to be about one and a half trillion. And when you think that uh, not so long ago, uh, you know, a trillion on the deficit was, oh, shock, horror. You know, it's just the interest now is well in excess of that. So, you know, this is an example of how a debt trap works. When you get into a situation when you can't really cut government spending and your interest bill is rising and rising and rising and you're going to have funding difficulties down the line, you know, raising extra debt and all the rest of it, because the numbers no longer add up. Um, that is called a debt trap. And that's really what we're going into now. So it's a sort of bookended situation. You had the rough period, you had the time of calm, and now we're coming to the end of the fiat currency era. And it really is the end. What we will presumably discuss is what replaces it. But this is that that is how I see it at the moment. And I think uh, quite a number of other commentators have sort of gone down this route. Um, 
uh, I mean, um, Zoltan Pozar, for example, in a famous Credit Suisse um, analyst who's now set out on his own, um, I think he was the first person to come up and say, this is Bretton Woods 3. And that sort of meme is actually, cotton, you know, it's being cottoned onto by quite a lot of people that, you know, the idea of Bretton Woods, you know, the end of Bretton Woods, that was Bretton Woods 1. Bretton Woods 2 was that long period I've just described. Bretton Woods 3 is, you know, the move away from fiat into something which he said um, would be more, you know, currencies um, uh, uh, associated with commodities, that sort of, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but if you're going to so associate a currency with a commodity, then really what you're talking about is um, linking it into one commodity, which represents all the others. And that, of course, is real legal money, which is physical gold. And um, we just don't have it. <laughs> So, so this is going to be an interesting time for us. I'm, I'm afraid. I would rather it wasn't this interesting, but it is interesting. You mean interesting in the in the apocryphal Chinese character, interesting way, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, Precisely, you live in interesting yes. times, yes. right? You know, the character is made up of, of exactly. danger and chaos or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. All right. So, so so we had this gold standard. That's Bretton Woods one, and and it made sense, right? I think I think the the structure of it intellectually, I understood why they did it. it made sense, right? Um, at that mm. time, post-war, a lot of shattered economies. You need a stable thing. We're starting to have global trade. It makes sense. The problem is humans, right? Who can't help themselves politically from just spending a little bit more than they actually are earning. It's just it's a very normal thing, right? Particularly when you have that printing press. So then that breaks August fifteenth, nineteen seventy one, with the temporary suspension. Of the gold window, right. which is why when you hear yeah. them talk about like transient inflation, you know, just grab your wallet. Um, <laughs> and, and and yeah, but it's gone on and on and on. And and so one of the other things I'd like to talk to you about is is how they've managed to keep this going long enough. My philosophy, and I'd love to get your take on this, is this, it's just been one shenanigan after the other. That that it, at first they had to intervene rarely and exceptionally because it was really important, you know. It was a Black Tuesday in the market. It was a long-term capital management. And then yeah, that, that camel's nose got under the tent, Alistair. And then next thing you know, like they're intervening more and more regularly. I Maybe I see a, a shadow under every bush now, but I'm pretty sure I see constant interventions in the markets now. Yeah. I get the sense of just putting fingers in the dike all over the place. And maybe we have more leaks than fingers right now. But I, I see, I, I don't trust the markets anymore. I think they've broken them. And, and, and my evidence for this, even if I can't give you the exact specifics, but I'd love a full audit down to the transaction level to be sure, but of the mm. Fed. But you know what I see now? I open up my uh, FinViz. I look at the indices. I'm looking at the Dow Jones, the small caps in the U.S. technology yeah. shares, the German DAX, the FTSE, uh, all of them. They all trade tick for tick on a five-minute scale. They all look exactly the same. I can't tell the charts apart if you delabeled them. They look the same on an hourly basis. They look the same on a weekly and a monthly basis. Like there's no difference. Japanese stocks, German stocks, small caps, they are now one market. And that's my prima facie evidence for these are not markets anymore. There's something else, Yeah. you know? What's your take yeah. on that? Um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, markets are so intervened in. I mean, you know, uh, central banks... Um, Oh, uh, you know, sort of it, currency stabilization funds, whatever you like to call it. I mean, they're, they're intervening all the time. I mean, that is that is for sure. 
But the underlying problem is something which um, uh, was not properly recognized going all the way back to the 1930s. And that is that there is such a thing as a bank credit cycle. And it's quite simple. I mean, if you start off with, say, normal times, um, bankers are normally quite cautious. They will look at things very closely and they will, you know, lend money on projects which um, they think are reasonably worked out. Uh, and uh, of course, the expansion of credit makes the economy look just that much better. Um, and that's perfectly valid. I'm not worried about that at all, as long as the credit is directed into, um, uh, you know, sort of profit making opportunities, and where they fail, the credit disappears, or it, you know, the the banks put it into bankruptcy, whatever, whatever. That is normal. You can expand credit quite a lot on that basis. But the problem is that bankers get a little bit enthusiastic with this, and then they start competing for business. Now, that's generally a no-no, <laughs> you know, because it changes the whole thing. They're trying to um, increase the uh, leverage in their balance sheets, um, and they then find, uh, you know, by maybe reducing the rates a bit to try and attract you know, this 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 customer who is strategically important uh, in his sector, you know, we must get him on board sort of thing. So we will lend him some money. That sort of thing happens. And then inevitably the expansion of, call it slightly false credit, uh, leads to prices rising, um, product short shortages, you've got commodity bottlenecks, you know, labor skill bottlenecks, all these things happen. And then, you know, suddenly all the business plans are beginning to go awry. So, mm -hmm. you know, the bankers then think, and they do this individually, but they all do it all at the same time. They think, well, oh, yeah, hold on, we're a bit exposed to this economy and it looks like um, it's going to turn down. And generally, if these guys have been around a bit, they'll see that there's undue speculation in the markets. You know, like um, we have the Roaring Twenties, for example, before the 1930s. What was that? That was on the back of um, uh, uh, monetary or sorry, credit expansion, which for the first time was uh, assisted by Benjamin Strong at the Fed, the first Fed chairman who believed in, uh, you know, giving the economy a nudge with central bank uh, currency. And, um, you know, it, you know, it looked fine until, of course, you saw the other side of the coin. And when banks, um, you know, begin to recognize that there is something wrong with this, they start drawing in the horns. They try to reduce the leverage in their balance sheets and the result is that you get a crash. Uh, and as to your point about interventions, what we have seen is continual interventions to try and stop this cycle from destabilizing the economy. And um, the problem is that every time they manage to stop it really destabilizing the economy, um, next time it's a damn sight worse. You know, <laughs> the, the problems just mount you know, because they're never washed out of the system. So um, eventually the whole thing just falls over. And um, we had a pretty nasty shock, really. Well, the first one was, I suppose, was uh, the dot-com bubble bursting. I mean, there, there was, mm -hmm. I think the, the stock market halved on that. Uh, and then, of course, we had the Lehman crisis, um, you know, property crisis. And the Fed just wrote, you know, wrote an open-ended check to everybody um, you know, bail you all out. Uh, and um, it worked for a little while. I mean, that was what, 13, 14 years ago now. So, 
actually, um, you know, the Fed has been successful in that. But what it's done is it's stored out problems down the line. And that is what we're now addressing. And we're seeing, um, you know, uh, debt which was taken out at low interest rates when interest rates, the Fed's interest rates was zero. <laughs> the Bank of Japan's and, um, uh, you know, the, the Eurozone's interest rates were negative. I mean, it's just, just crazy. It is crazy, absolutely crazy. But anyway... Um, what do you do? You load up on debt. I mean, you know, the bank's quite happy to lend, you know, lend money, particularly if you're doing something financial. If you're making something, you know, that takes a little bit more understanding by today's investment bankers. You know, they think, <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, it's far easier to lend someone to lend a hedge fund some money or something. You know, that's so, you know, the credit has expanded more in that direction, you know, rather than in the direction of actual production. Um Wall Street has benefited, if you like, rather than Main Street. And, um, you know, so this is now beginning to unwind. And um, this is particularly noticeable in the area of derivatives. I mean, the first shock we had on this one uh, was last year um, when we had a, a temporary prime minister in the, <laughs> in the sense of a free market loving lady <laughs> called Liz Truss. And, uh, you know, she came up with this budget to try and stimulate the economy by, um, you know, sort of cutting taxes, but without cutting public spending. And the result was that the gilt market took fright. And we then discovered that um, pension funds, I mean, would you believe pension funds getting into leveraged investments and doing things like that? I mean, you know, this is not what a pension fund should be doing. But on the other hand, you know, when, when uh, you know, a sort of um, a government uh, security, a gilt, yields three quarters of a percent or something, and they've got liabilities out there, you know, going on for, you know, sort of 30, 40 years, tied to final salaries, which is the case with quite a lot still, then under those circumstances, I mean, they just cannot meet those obligations. So what they did was they started doing interest rate swaps. Now, they called it something fancy, liability-driven investment. <laughs> which, <laughs> Sounds good. Don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> but what it meant basically was that they could gear up the return on the gilt market. So, um, you know, if, if the gilts were paying say 2% or something, they could gear it up, uh, um, you know, four times to 8%. Um, and then you're beginning to meet, meet your long-term liabilities. But the way you did it basically was in a geared interest rate swap. An interest rate swap is really quite simple. You get two parties. One wants a fixed rate and the other wants a floating rate. And uh, so they come to an agreement that, um, you know, in return for me getting a fixed rate, you have the floating rate and you will pay me the fixed rate. Um, and that way, uh, you know, I can begin to uh, have some certainty in my income stream. And if we leverage it up, then that's lovely. But within this contract, which is a standard contract, it's uh, set by the ISD, the International Securities and Dealers Association, standard contract, when uh, the interest rates rise, you find that the, um, the fixed rate is below the floating rate. Now, what that means is that in terms of collateral, with the fixed rate, you have to send collateral over to the floating rate provider. 
And this suddenly happened in uh, the gilt market. The, 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 the gilt, gilt yield started rising quite sharply. I mean, very, very sharply. And the result was that pension funds were having calls which they had to meet on their uh, liability-driven investment schemes. And so they were start selling gilts off to basically meet these calls. And um, now what we have uh, a year later is, I mean, it won't have escaped anybody's notion, <laughs> interest, I hope, that uh, bond yields everywhere are just shooting up um, and government bond yields at that. I mean, it was interesting that uh, last week uh, when the Fed came out, when the FOMC committee came out and said, um, you know, we're just pausing on interest rates. Now, you would have thought that with yields on the 10-year US Treasury note having risen very, very um, strongly ahead of that, you would think that it would have come off. It didn't. It went on up. Now, the reason for that is quite simple. The world has got an enormous amount of these interest rate swaps. Um, according to the Bank of International Settlements, at the end of last year, the notional value of these swaps was $400 trillion equivalent. $400 trillion. Now, I mean, it's a mind-boggling amount. It really is. When you think that the US economy is about, what, $27 trillion, we're talking about $400 trillion. Now, admittedly, on an interest rate swap, you do not involve the, um, if you like, the headline number of 400 trillion. You involve a fraction of it. Um, but you can easily see that what is shifting here is maybe five to 10 trillion dollars equivalent around the world of collateral, which is having to go from the fixed end, if you like, of the swap, which is way underwater with the floating rate way above it. They're having to just come out with increasing amounts of collateral into the floating rate side. So this is, I think, what is really driving markets. And it's a bit of a doom loop. Um, and, um, you know, we've had a pause today, which is uh, always very, very welcome. But, I mean, it really does look to me as if these rates um, are going to go a hell of a lot higher. Uh, because the system's falling apart, Chris. I mean, that's the other way to express it. Well, if Alistair very well explained so so um, many things, let me let me just back up one thing though. So, so it's easy to say, oh my gosh, what were these pension funds thinking, gearing up, levering up like that, right? Well, they kind of had to; they were forced to. So let's. I want to go to the headwaters of this particular bad decision cycle, right? Because I, I love I love me my old economist John Stuart Mill said, panics do not destroy capital; they merely reveal the extent to which it's already been hopelessly betrayed, right? Yeah. So. Those poor pension funds and many other people and entities were forced into this yield chasing behavior because you can't the, the, the central banks and in their infinite wisdom said, we know better than the market what the price of money should be. It should be close to zero. So they do that. Right. But then yeah. everybody from an endowment to a pension to a, a, a person facing retirement who has who has a cash flow management issue, we're getting nothing right. Zero on our bank accounts. We're getting zero on our bond portfolio. So you have to take risks. And then I, I watch things like junk debt having a four yeah. handle here in the United States, 4%, 4% for truly awful zombie companies, right? Because that's how desperate people were. So again, um, because I'm an equal opportunity basher, um, these, these, these seemed like horribly bad decisions to me by the central banks, but I feel they were forced by prior bad decisions that started all the way back with the, these three big Bretton Woods we're talking about, right? 
So, I mean, is that is that a fair way to look at this? Like, like these were forced behaviors I, that were not yeah, market abs- driven. No, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, it goes back to the point you were making about how they seem to be stumbling from one crisis to another crisis to another crisis. And, uh, you know, we've got this situation, really, where, um, you know, if they don't do anything, the whole system begins to fall over like like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, right. the amount of debt, um, you know, both government debt and also private sector debt, um, you know, which is unproductive, is just absolutely horrendous. So, Schumpeter's um, creative destruction, which should be going on all the time, basically that's been halted, and and uh, you know the problems are just mounting and mounting and mounting. And I mean, think about even things like I mean, it's it, it's so pernicious this problem. Uh, things like um, utilities. I mean, in this country, we've got Thames Water, which is the largest utility. It does, uh, well, it was second largest, whatever. Anyway, it does all London basically, and. Um, uh, you know, the advantage uh, of um, these utilities uh, is that um, they're regulated. Now, the regulator basically says, uh, this is what you can charge. And in my calculations, I've allowed so much for, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of capital investment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, a profit margin for you of something like 8% or something like that. Now, that's not very exciting. Um, and you would think that the regulator is actually being quite sensible. But then comes along private equity. And what does private equity do? It acquires control over something like Thames Water and says, right, we're gonna, what we're gonna do is we're gonna leverage this up so that we're getting 40%, <laughs> say you're 8%, you know. I mean, times five, you know. Five times the debt, if you like, um, to, to to equity, and then suddenly, you know, the the um, private equity boys are creaming out 40 percent on this. Now that's fine. Well, it's not really, but um, you know, the basis on which they have funded this was very very low interest rates. Now they're rising. They're in a situation basically where um, you know the utility is going bust. I mean, they've you know they've had to be rescued pretty much. Thames Water. And not only that, but the shareholders who had this wheeze of a scheme are finding that the value of their shares have just gone down the pan. <laughs> you know, this debt thing is so pernicious. I mean, the people who we sort of talk about in investment terms as being the masters of the universe are being exposed big time for their follies of relying on debt to uh, increase um, their, their profits. I mean, you know, this is it's uh, it, it, all the financing we have seen over the last 20 years is beginning to come unstuck. And this isn't going to stop with the US Treasuries at 5%. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at the end of uh, the fiat currency era, which, and I mean, there's so many signs of this, then um, uh, we're looking at something at the very minimum, which is, um, if you like, a doppelganger for the 1970s. And I remember in the 1970s, guilt's being issued with coupons of over 15%. Now, I mean, can you imagine what that does to US government finances? I, it, you know, as we go down the road, but we are going that way, exactly. I mean, we're already in this debt trap. I mean, you know, we've, I mentioned the you know the, the the debt interest and how next year it's likely to be one and a half trillion. It'll be one and a half trillion probably, with a total um, uh, deficit 
um, I should think it, uh, somewhere over three, three and a half trillion. I mean, you're going to you, you're going to be looking with the recession, which means higher welfare costs, lower tax receipts. That's going to basically blow apart government finances, which are starting from a point of minus two trillion dollars. That's a starting point. So, um, you know, how is this going to be funded and how are they going to fund um, the seven point six trillion dollars of debt, which matures in the next 20, uh, next 12 months? And when you look at the um, Office for Budget Responsibilities um, estimates of the cost of financing, um, the average interest on U.S. government debt, they reckon, was 2.9 percent for last year. Now, we're already at five. Now, admittedly, quite a lot of the debt, if you like, is still at that average and will continue to be at that average. But as time goes on, I mean, you've got 7.6 trillion, which is due to be refinanced. You've got uh, probably an extra four trillion, I should think, three or four trillion uh, from the budget deficit, from uh, having to pay um, you know, these interest higher interest costs and all the rest of it. That's on top of it. I mean, you can see how um, the markets, particularly which are becoming unreceptive to this debt. I mean, the, you know, with, with, with China and Japan reducing their um, exposure, Japan because it's got its own problems, China because, um, you know, there is a sort of political or geopolitical element in this. Um, I just can't see how the US government can, can fund itself in the next 12 months at anything like this uh, level. Interest rates, bond yields have got to be far, far higher. And um, we're going to get sort of a series of crises. Um, that is, if the whole thing doesn't get destabilized first, which is quite possible. And, um, you know, off air, we were talking about the amount of dollars, uh, dollar credit outside the system. People just don't realize, you know, they think that the Treasury tick figures are the be all and end all of foreign ownership of the dollars. It's not. Well, hold on for, to that thought for a second, because I want to get to that. But but so this doom loop you're describing, right, where, where more borrowing begets more borrowing, begets higher interest costs, which begets more borrowing and so on. And we spiral out. Yeah. Um, there's no way out of that cycle. There's only one way out, of course, which is more Federal Reserve or central bank printing. Now, my thesis is that, you know, Jay Powell, who, by the way, I just saw him on on some ad he did. He looked like he aged about 10 years in about 10 weeks. I mean, he, so he's under enormous pressure. Yeah. I, I get that. Um, it, but he's really in a rock and a hard place, I think, because it's a it's a it's going to be a very contentious political cycle here in the U.S. coming through 2024. We know that inflation is already this is when you when they poll people, what do you care about? It's right at the top of the list. They can't hide it. We know they're lying about it. Right. But inflation is really biting into people. I'm fairly price insensitive and I've been shocked at, you know, grocery prices and tax bills and things like that. Local taxes. It's it's shocking. So uh, for other people that, of course, my shock is their ruin, you know, and so um, that's pressure. So I don't know that they're going to be able to just they're going to need a heck of a crisis, Alistair, to reverse this and start buying those treasuries because they are going to have to be the buyer of last resort again, I think. Would you agree? Yes. Or how do you see this playing out? Well, uh... I mean, I think I, th I think you put it very well. I mean, there is no obvious solution. Well, there is one obvious solution, but it's politically unpalatable. And that is basically to really cut uh, government spending right back. Balance the well, that budget. Would be something. <laughs> um, 
But I mean, you know, our government here are trying to balance the budget. They won't quite succeed. Um, but if they manage to do that, then what happens is that the creation of credit in the economy is no longer being totally absorbed by the government deficit. And the result is that the private sector doesn't get crowded out. It is amazing how quickly an economy can benefit from that um, absence of the budget deficit. This is a very, very important point. We had this um, uh, going way back when Nigel, no, it was Geoffrey Howe, the first, uh, the first few years of, of um, uh, Margaret Thatcher's um, regime, this was 1980-ish, uh, 1981, uh, Geoffrey Howe did something which nobody recommended at all. Uh, well, I say nobody, there were only two economists who actually recommended it. Uh, and these were effectively Hayekian economists. Um, uh, but 364 economists wrote a letter to the Times saying this was absolutely disastrous. What was he doing? He was balancing the budget. He was raising taxes on the eve of a recession in order to balance the budget. And um, as the annals of the Times, you know, sort of said, almost immediately, uh, the economy began to improve. So, you know, this this deficit, I mean, the Keynesians say that the deficit is the way to get, get an economy out of a recession. But actually, it's, um, it is so debilitating for the overall economy. Um, it's absolutely crazy. And this is really what America would have to do. But um, as you rightly say, we're, we're in an election year now. Um, you know, when every um, wannabe re-elected president, you know, ramps up the odds on the spending, um, you have got, um, you know, the Biden administration seems to only um, want to pluck that magic money tree. I mean, it's got really no, um, no fiscal uh, discipline whatsoever. Um, and you've got, an, uh, you know, this sort of appalling system whereby, um, you know, if you get the Republicans and the Democrats to try and agree to, to um, you know, some sort of course and expenditure, they've all got the handout for something. You know, I will agree to that if you give, the, give us this and so on. So you've got all this sort of pork barrel politics going on. I just can't see how America can do it. But um, so we're, we're, we're really looking at a situation which is spiraling out of control. And, um, you know, perhaps um, we should have some very, very belated sympathy for, you know, the German politicians in 1922, 1921, probably. I mean, you know, you can see how impossible the situation is for the political world. And, um, you know, the answer basically is, you know, if you can't deal with it, just don't face it. Just, you know, um, budget deficit. I mean, you just spend. That's what well, they're doing. Um, so, so, and and maybe we could get to this this uh, chart we were going to talk at uh, this table, but but before that, um, so I get asked this question. I don't have a good answer because I don't understand it. I'm I'm sure you do better than I do by far. So people say, oh well, you know, obviously this is an, this is a math problem. It it has no resolution. It it's just you only have to answer and ask one question, which is who's going to eat the losses. Right. Is it pensioners? Is it, you know, who who's going to eat the losses and is it the debt holders? So then people go, well, is this the context for the so-called great reset? Because clearly you got to hit a reset button on the system. And given that, how do the central bank digital currencies, the CBDCs, do those play in? Because I don't understand the mechanism. Like even if we had CBDCs, 
how does that, how does that, how would you even begin to intersect that? How does that solve anything when you still have, you know, X trillions of dollars of losses that are going to accumulate over here? I don't know how you square that circle. So is this, do you think those are connected <laughs> dots or is this just all one big, you know, goulash that has nothing to do with itself? I think I, I, I think it's um, the establishment, the central banking establishment, realizing that uh, there are real problems here and they're trying to find a way mm. out. And uh, I mean, it started really with, uh, you know, uh, the private sector seems to be inventing money, you know, like Bitcoin and so on and so forth. So we've got to come up with a response to this. Um, and uh, so, they, you know, the Bank of International Settlements um, set up a committee which was going to coordinate all the information coming in from all the central banks about what they thought and so on. And so they have designed this new CBDC template, which basically um, means that, um, you know, we all have uh, an account with um, our central bank. Uh, as businesses and also as consumers and um, the uh, central bank can direct where the credit goes. Now, I mean, this is complete nonsense because the central bank has not a clue how to <laughs> direct any any credit at all. You know, it can right. only sort of chuck system, at, you know, money at the system just broadly, um, which is what it, it does. Governments are exactly the same. I mean, every time they try and, uh, you know, sort of, uh, give preference to one sector as opposed to another. I mean, they just end up distorting the markets and they get absolutely nowhere with it. They're incompetent. They do not have the competence to do it. And I think that um, the parallel that I would draw with the concept of a new currency, because, you know, the current one is failing, if you like, um, you've just got to go back to France at the time of the French Revolution. I mean, the, around about that time, uh, the parliament introduced uh, something called the Assignat, which was, um, uh, it was actually meant to be a dividend paying um, bond, which could circulate as currency. And it was secured, um, in inverted commas, uh, on uh, the um, Catholic Church's uh, land, which the state had nationalized. Uh, because in those days, uh, I think that the, the church uh, owned about 25% of France. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> it was the largest landowner in France by far. Uh, and um, uh, anyway, when that started failing, you know, it all started um, sort of this is an emergency thing, you know, and we will just do one issue of this, just one issue. But then, you know, another problem came along and. Well, just one more, just one more issue. Anyway, this went on to the point where <laughs> they started issuing these Asinia, you know, just, just like confetti. And the result was that their value just sank. Um, they then came up with another wheeze, the Mandat Territorio, to replace the hated Asinia. And everybody said, hooray, right, bonfire of the Asinia. And we've got this new currency. Within six months, that had gone too. I mean, the answer basically is you cannot replace one fiat currency with another fiat currency. It's just, you know, it's it's just trying to postpone the problem, postpone the reality that what you need actually is to tie credit to something which actually has value over the long term and is recognized as such. And that legally and naturally is solid, precious metals, gold silver and if you go way back copper as well so um you know that's the only way you can do it you have to have a gold standard in order to tie the credit to it 
Now, when you have that, you can expand the amount of credit so long as it is being expanded into productive use without um, upsetting, if you like, the purchasing power of that credit because it is tied to gold. And it's really quite simple. And I've written a few articles, actually, as to how a modern um, uh, gold standard can be, uh, um, you know, devised and set up and put into place. Um, and I would I would say that uh, Russia and China could do this very, very easily because they don't have the, uh, if you like, the deficit problems we have. They don't have the um, the background of very high rates, very high levels of uh, government debt. I mean, I think in, in 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 Russia, the level of government debt is probably this year is going to be about 20 percent or something like that of GDP. In China, we're looking at about, I don't know, 45, 50 percent, something. And so this is a very different thing from our situation. And um, I do happen to know that both those nations have got uh, uh, very large amounts of gold physical gold off balance sheet as it were not on you know not not uh, as declared reserves so they can easily do it and not only that but actually the way you regulate um the amount of gold that you have in the economy is uh, through interest rates interest rates must be set to set the level of gold um reserve not to manage the economy that's the key to it and if you do it that way it's actually quite easy because if you think about it, if you've got a credible gold standard, and let us say um, you have got uh, a, you know sort of quite a difference between uh, one centre and the country of the gold standard in terms of uh, interest, then you're going to have an arbitrage running because the point about having a gold standard is that the gold substitutes are as good as gold. So if, let's say, in Russia's case, um, they're currently paying something like 12, 13 percent. I mean, that's that's the that's the interest rate. Now, if they went on to a gold standard, just using that as an example, um, you know, people in Russia, people, um, you know, who can buy rubles, uh, <laughs> which is not you and I, I'm afraid, uh, could quite easily uh, buy gold in, uh, say, uh, London or something like that, where the lease rate is two percent. Ship it over to um, you know the, the the central bank, or rather, it would be the issuing department of the central bank in in Moscow, and you get paid fifteen percent. So fifteen minus two, and you're being paid in gold. I mean, you know what's not to like? This is why you use the interest rate to regulate the amount of gold reserves you have backing the currency. Never ever use it to try and manage the economy. That's where we've gone horribly wrong. They've managed, they've managed, they've continued to manage and managed my whole life. It's I do feel like we're coming to Bretton Woods 3. I want to talk about this, though, this this thing here, um, because this is a chart that, uh, I mean, sorry, a table, I should be saying, that uh, came in my email box uh, this morning from uh, from you at um, yeah. a, a, as part of a, a missive that I, I've signed up for your really excellent newsletter. People should do that at goldmoney.com. Um, and, and you had this one called Unwinding the Financial System. I've cut out all the words, which were amazing, and I just pulled this table out because, Alistair, I don't understand this table because I'm pretty familiar with some of these numbers, but I only know two of them, really, which is the $26 trillion of onshore long-term securities that are held by the foreigners and the $10.7 trillion um, offshores. 
that that's yeah. what the treasury international capital system the tick system tells me what are these other numbers on here and then well, i want to talk about that that conclusion you come to in that yellow line on the bottom but first where do you get these numbers up top that's a 137 okay. oh, right. trillion goodness <laughs> well the 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 onshore numbers which actually are the 26 and the 7.4 um, those are uh, U.S. Treasury tick figures, um, and you mm. know you can go onto their site and you can see how that's broken down into equities, uh, long-term bonds, including U.S. Treasuries, bank deposits, and also things like Treasury bills and so on, maturing in less than a year. So, so that's those two. Now, the bottom two are basically uh, dollars which have been created outside the uh, U.S. banking system. Now, it, I think I think it probably helps if I just explain how a bank does this. It's quite really quite simple. Um, credit is basically loaned into existence. Now we're quite familiar with the idea that, say, uh, J.P. Morgan, um, you know, it will make a loan. It makes a loan to someone. Let's say lend someone a billion dollars, and what it does in its balance sheet is it has an asset of a billion dollars, which is the loan which is due to come back to it. And on the other side of the balance sheet, it has to have a matching deposit, which will be $1 billion. So it has created uh, this credit by lending it into existence. Now, this is the way banking works. Quite a lot of people don't understand this, but it's actually very, very simple. Now, um, obviously, uh, a bank like JP Morgan has got many, many loans, many, many deposits. Um, it finds that... Um, in the broader sense, at the end of the day, the figures basically balance. Now, where they don't, they just go into the market. And if they're short of deposits, they just borrow some, some money in the wholesale markets. If they're long of deposits, then they will lend it into the market. So that is what the wholesale market is all about. Now, if you've got a wholesale market in a currency um, offshore or even offshore and onshore, then a bank outside America can do exactly the same thing, not just with its own currency, but with dollars. And of course, it's been doing this for some time. And if you look at the history of dollars created outside the United States, loaned into existence, um, this goes all the way back to uh, shortly after the Second World War, where um, uh, there were restrictions um, in America, which, um, I mean, deposits, a 30-day deposit, I can't remember, I think it was called Regulation Q, 30-day deposits, you couldn't pay, as a bank, you couldn't pay more than 1%. And uh, when it came to, um, I, I think it was up to 90 days, uh, the, the level was something like 2 2.5%. That's all they could pay. So what um, some banks in London did, and particularly the Midland Bank, what they did was they offered a higher deposit rate uh, to um, anyone who wanted to take it in dollars, uh, which would give them a turn over anything that they could get out of a, a US bank. They could then uh, deal forward in the market with those dollars, selling them for sterling, and end up borrowing sterling at a lower rate than the Bank of England set its base rate. And this is, you know, so you can see how, <laughs> you know, even in those days, um, there were incentives. Banks are very clever. You know, they will find somewhere. There's an arbitrage here, there, wherever. And it's all, you know, usually created by a government somewhere along the line, suppressing rates or whatever. That's what happened. That was the start of the euro dollar market. Now, 
these euro dollars were um, created in greater and greater numbers. And particularly from 1971, uh, when the gold standard went, when Bretton Woods was suspended, uh, you can see how with the expansion of um, the global economy measured in these dollars, how these overseas dollars outside the system would just mount and mount and mount up. Now, um, there was a paper which was produced by a guy called Claudio Borio, for, who's, who's the sort of chief economist um, at, um, or chief researcher or whatever, uh, at uh, the Bank of International Settlements. And these figures for the offshore uh, short-term securities are his. Um, he reckons that there is $93 trillion um, in uh, offshore um short-term securities and by that is what that uh, by that i mean maturing within one year and in essence this is uh, foreign exchange commitments where the dollar is one of the legs because that ends up being um either on balance sheet or off balance sheet a liability for a bank or a non-bank which has gone into the transaction and but, these but, I mean, are... can, can I get an example real quick? So, I mean, could this yeah. be like a Polish person takes out a mortgage, but they take it out in a U.S. dollars and that's part of this euro dollar system, something like that. But these don't necessarily represent U.S. dollars that, that came from the U.S. They were created offshore for offshore purposes and they're floating around out there. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. But more so than, say, um, you know, the idea of someone taking out a mortgage, this is this is far more associated with uh, credit being created for the purchase of commodities, uh, for um, the purchase of, um, you know, part part assembled equipment for. Well, equipment, uh, manufacturing equipment, trade and all the rest of it. So trade settlements and so on. The point is that these dollars, you know, once they're created, um, it's actually quite hard to not, you know, to uncreate them, as it were, because mm. the fact is that, you know, when you create um, a loan, which would be, let us say, someone wanting to buy dollars out of euros, you create the loan for um, uh, the, the, the customer to do that. Equally, at the same time, you're creating a deposit on the other side. Now, you can switch around on, on the asset side of your balance sheet because that is something that you can do. But as a bank, you can't do very much about uh, um, uh, the deposit side. I mean, as an individual bank, you can. Yes, you can regulate the rates so that deposits either flow in or they flow out. But if we're talking about a entire system, once deposits are created, it's very, very hard to get them to be uncreated, if you see, if you see what I mean. So we, this is this is what this means is that really over a very long period of time we have had this accumulation of offshore short-term dollars, um, ninety-three trillion. And if I can just say a word about the long-term securities, I mean, we, you know, we know we've known that um, euro-dollar bonds have been set up and all the rest of it, uh, and they started actually in in the nineteen sixties. I think Belgium was the first one uh, to to um, you know the Belgium state uh, it was the first one to borrow in offshore uh, dollars, um, but that's only ten point seven trillion. Um, you know, people miss the size of. The uh, you know the 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 actual dollar deposits which are created uh, as a result of foreign exchange transactions, and uh, those foreign exchange transactions have one of the legs as dollars. 
So um, what this means is that you've got not just um, you know, uh, loan commitments, um, you also have the deposits, and you can add that into the total number of uh, dollar credit in existence. And it is considerably larger than the amount of onshore stuff. And that's how we get uh, that total of 137 trillion. Well, and oh, and if we look, yeah. if we if we look Sorry. at the ratio then of of what the U.S. residents have, it's it's this obscene ratio of over 180. But but so so what happens if so? I can't. I don't even know how to make sense of 93 trillion of outstanding short term securities because somebody had to have manufactured conjured 93 trillion in loans. That, that's a big number. I mean, I don't know if I can believe it, but CNBC tells me that there's only 300 trillion of total outstanding debt in the world. A third of that is denominated in short-term U.S. dollars. Yeah, I think that's probably about right, actually, because oh my know, goodness, I mean, and and of course the other thing is that I mean, you know, if 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 CNBC is saying three hundred trillion, um, I mean, you, you know, are we talking about um, uh, you know in bank accounts or are we talking about in uh, shadow banks uh, as well mm -hmm. or what? You know, so so you do have these factors. But this this ratio, I mean, let me put it this way. Let us assume that uh, that uh, bond yields continue to rise, which basically means that the value of bonds declines and that begins to feed into equity markets. So they start declining as well. Now, of that 26 trillion of onshore long term securities, we just concentrate on that, um, you know, that's going into a bear market. Are the foreigners going to sit around uh, and take losses in a bear market or are they going to reduce their exposure to the market? Well, they'll reduce their exposure to the market. I think that's quite, um, quite, quite simple. The question then is, what do they do with the accumulation of cash dollars, which they moved out of the category of long-term securities into short-term securities? Now, at some stage, um, you know, at the moment, of course, you know, in the initial stages of, a crisis there is a uh, you know people go into the dollar they i mean you get out of weaker currencies into the king of fiat currencies which is the dollar i mean you know it's that is safety but then there comes a point where um you know systemic risk begins to be uppermost in everybody's minds and at that stage they start moving into something else like commodities like um gold if you like, and so on and so forth, or into currencies which they, you know, which which um, are perceived, if you like, to be more um, a, you know, sort of tied to to commodities. Now, I think the problem with you know tied to commodities is that you actually do need to tie a currency properly properly to commodities, which is why they will need to introduce reintroduce gold standards. Um, so you can see that uh, going back to that ratio, you've got this sort of huge, huge, great mountain of credit um, overhanging uh, the United States, which looks like being liquidated. So the question is, how much in terms of uh, foreign currencies do American residents have to sell in order to buy in those dollars? And the answer is, there's you know, less than a trillion dollars. So. This is, you know, this is uh, a one-way ticket. Once the avalanche starts, it's, I think, basically the dollar will be completely destroyed, but it will also take down all the other fiat currencies. This is, this is um, possibly 
uh, you know, I think I think it probably indicates that once this starts, it's going to be quicker than we've ever seen a collapse of currency before. I mean, when I say that, I'm thinking about, um, you know, the experience of other hyperinflations, um, which uh, hyperinflation is the currency collapse. Uh, and um, usually it starts with, you know, with foreigners selling and uh, it ends with people, uh, residents, the users of the currency, actually beginning to realize that it's not prices going up, it's their currency becoming worthless. And at that stage, they dump it very quickly. And uh, there's no sort of, you know, really readily identifiable point where this switches over. But, um, you know, reading the accounts of uh, the hyperinflations in Europe in uh, the early 1920s, it seemed that it was around about, uh, you know, six to eight months. That would be the sort of period where a currency really gets completely destroyed. Uh, and um, also when John Law's uh, Livre um, collapsed, finally collapsed, I mean, that was around about six months between uh, February 1720 and uh, the following September, October. So that's the sort of timescale you would see for the collapse of a currency. But I would argue that with all the offshore dollar credit, which is deposits and debt, matching debt on the other side of, uh, of um, a bank's balance sheets, or even a shadow bank's balance sheet, uh, then um, you, that, that ratio, I think, tells us that this actually could be a lot more sudden. Um, so it's, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think. I mean, it's not, you know, once, once King Dollar gets undermined like that, I mean, we're all in exactly the same trouble. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not going to be limited to America at all. And, right. Uh, this well, is well, just from a from a from a finance and monetary standpoint, I'm this guy. I bring in this third element, um, which is which is oil, which is energy, and Alistair. I can't like this has been such a shock after shock after shock to me. So of course, you know, um, the Saud family and the United States long relationship. It goes all the way back to Kermit Roosevelt. We got to go back to the 30s. It's been this long thing, and they basically just. You know, read between the lines. They gave us one of these uh, this year and said, we're not playing ball with the U.S. anymore. And they turned pivoted completely towards China. They want inclusion in the BRICS, all of that. But but this is the part I don't think people really understand, because, again, bad narratives give you bad outcomes. We have a story running in this country that were very mm -hmm. clever and we had this shale miracle. And if we need to, we've got one more rabbit in the hat, um, as always. And it's just a question of, you know, wanting to enough or something like that. But I'm the guy who actually reads the geology reports and looks at it at a county level and looks at the leases and it's not there i mean we burned through a really amazing thing you know we really have one shale basin left that's producing more and that's the permian it's amazing but it's actually just two counties montreal and eddy county are responsible for most of that so we're like whittled down to just two counties overlapping mostly texas but also new mexico and that's where we are in the story and everybody in my country is just like woo to do that's how it is in china's inking deals and Saudi Arabia is make, making its own decisions. We've alienated Russia, uh, who's one of the other. The, the two largest exporters in the world are now no longer in, under our fold. And so now I have to ask you about that table, because now we're going to talk about this thing called the petrodollar, which I don't know how much of those 93 trillion or the other 10 are, are part of that petrodollar cycle. I assume there's some overlap, but countries needed to use dollars to buy oil. Roosevelt stood that up about 1973 in the shadow of the, you know, temporary suspension of the gold window. It was a great thing. 
when you talk about that Bretton Woods three coming along, this regime change, it, the, mm. the idea that the petrodollar is no longer and it's rapidly going out of play. That was one yeah. of the three legs of the stool really holding the whole system together. Um, I'm yeah. wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, I mean, it, it was the deal really which which Nixon and Kissinger uh, came to with the Saudis. Um, you know, basically what it was, was we'll let you move the price of oil as you see fit because, well, for a start, they couldn't control it. And secondly, actually what America wanted at that stage was a higher oil price to make its own domestic oil, uh, um, you know, viable. Uh, and uh, so there was a sort of, hidden agenda in that um that was the creation of the petrodollar and um you know the deal basically was that uh, so long as they took dollars for their oil those dollars would go into the u.s banking system and the credit if you like could then be recycled into other things which uh, you know like latin america which at that time uh, america particularly wanted to retain the political uh, um, you know, in, in their political orbit, as it were. I mean, remember that was the time of Che Guevara and all the, all this, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, uh, that was the basic deal. And um, Mohammed bin Salman um, comes along and basically trashes that deal. And I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a G7 or a G20 meeting. I think it was G20, um, where. <laughs> where Putin came in um, and uh, said hello to uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and they high-fived. <laughs> now, they obviously had an agreement between each other, okay, and I, we're still seeing this. And I think, um, you know, if we fast forward from that uh, towards um, BRICS, uh, the Russians very definitely had this plan to uh, put a, a new uh, currency into existence, which would be gold-backed, and uh, members of BRICS and also members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization would use to trade between each other. Because from Russia's point of view, I mean, they've, they've, they've got a pile of um, Indian rupees, which are completely worthless to them, because you know they, they can't do anything with them, because the way the foreign exchange markets work is you sell the rupees for dollars, uh, and then you sell the dollars for whatever you want, you know, for the currency that you ultimately want. Um, so and they can't deal in dollars. So yeah, that's completely worthless to them. Now, the deal, I think um, it's interesting how this has all been uh, assembled, because um, you have got three players in there uh, on the energy side. You've got, um, as you say, Russia, Saudis uh, and also Iran. Now, all of them basically understand that gold is money and the rest is credit as jp morgan the original jp morgan said to congress back in what was it 1912 i think um they understand this uh, and um you know you, you've also got another thing with as far as the saudis are concerned i mean they've been very very happy basically to turn their backs on america um because i mean you know you and i are a bunch of inf infidels and particularly America has been, you know, sort of pushing itself, if you like, on the region and destabilizing it. It's been ruling, if you like, by creating mini wars all over the place, all over the Middle East. And as soon as um, Mohammed bin Salman basically kicked us out, um, peace has reigned. I mean, they've now exchanged diplomatic relations with Tehran, you know, Assad visits Riyadh and the Houthis in the Yemen. They're, they're no, no, you know, 
that's all being sorted out now and and so on and so on so so um this is a new world and it's not one which we're involved with at all and i am convinced getting back to this gold story i'm convinced that um uh, russia had the support of saudi arabia in this but it never made the agenda uh, this new gold-backed uh, currency. It never made the agenda at the uh, summit uh, simply because India and China objected to it. Now, India objected to it because they are basically Keynesian and they don't have very much in the way of gold reserves anyway. They've been trying to amend that, but I would say half-heartedly, really. Um, they've always viewed um, you know, gold as a bit of a pain in the butt. You know, Their citizens keep on acquiring it and screwing up the import export figures as a result and smuggling it and you know so they've always wanted to get away from this um china has a very different view uh china been around a long time um you know they're sort of got a confucian idea i suppose um confucius was about 500 years ago um slightly before aristotle <laughs> and, and plato and all the rest of it um, so, you know, they've got a long, long history and their approach to um, geopolitics is quite simple. And that is we don't do anything. We just let everybody else do things. And if they make mistakes, then what we do is we um, try and address this, the, the new situation. Um, so they're not going to destabilize the West by suddenly, say, you know, supporting some sort of gold backed currency. To them, that is, if you like, um, the protection which will eventually be extended to their currency um, in the event of a currency collapse of the fiat currencies, which they, they can see is on the cards. I mean, you know, these guys aren't stupid. They really are not. And it's interesting that um, uh, if you look at the history of all this, first of all, the state acquired an awful lot of gold. They encouraged gold mining, put an awful lot of investment into gold mining and became the largest miners in the world. Um, by 2002, they'd obviously acquired enough um, gold at the state level uh, to then open the Shanghai Gold Exchange and permit their citizens to buy gold, because until then they weren't allowed to buy gold So and gold and silver. So um, and since then, um, something like uh, 21,000 tons has been delivered from the Shanghai Gold Exchange into the private sector hands. Uh, so this is, um, you know, this is quite something. Now, the latest thing in this, uh, oh, there was another thing. Around about 2010, they started advertising on television, uh, you know, buy gold, it does you good or something, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever. They were encouraging their citizens to acquire gold, which is interesting. Uh, and uh, very recently, and very few people have picked this up, but back in, uh, I think it was June, July, um, what the Chinese government did was it set up a system for, you know, with the state banks, for the state banks to offer um, people with very small balances, the, you know, in other words, people without any wealth, really, but, you know, just a you know, a few savings, you know, the, the lower echelons, if you like, in, in the Chinese society, the ability to acquire gold. Uh, and uh, this is not so much for delivery, but basically what you could do is you could run a gold account. Um, I think the difference with the way our bullion banks run a gold account, I mean, is unallocated. The gold doesn't exact, actually exist. It's just a, a credit obligation, if you like. But here, you know, this is actually backing backed by gold. 
Um, and the other thing, then finally, and this is this is very, very new, literally, I think within the last week or two, um, the Chinese banks in London have decided to withdraw from the gold fix. Now, this is interesting. Why have they done that? They don't just sort of do this, you know, because, well, you know, we sort of don't fancy it anymore. No, they actually consider what they're doing. The only conclusion I can come to is they can see that the system is becoming so destabilized that they do not want to be in the position where they have obligations from UK or um, if you like member banks of the of of the LBMA LBMA um, who are who will be unable to fulfill those obligations. So you know that's why they've withdrawn from the market. Now this is fascinating because this is telling us that the Chinese see our fiat currency system is beginning to, if you like, literally go into its last few days and or months, if you like. Um, we really do face a real crisis and we're getting all the signals from everyone who really knows what's going on. But, you know, this is something we just don't want to be involved with. Stand back, stand back. And I think, I mean, the Russians can easily introduce a gold standard for the ruble. But at the moment, without a gold standard, I mean, the, you know, the, the currency is, is, is killing them. Uh, it's it's slid down to around about one cent per ruble. I mean, you know, like there's a hundred rubles to the to the dollar. Um, and remember that um, when uh, um, after the, shortly after the invasion of, um, uh, of of the Ukraine, when President Putin said, "Well, you know, if you want to buy oil, you're going to have to have to pay in rubles." I mean, the ruble um, shot up like you know the numbers are upside down. The number against the dollar went down to about 63 or something like that. We're now back up to 100. This is you need to sort of stand it upside down to see that actually from 60 to 100 is a very, very weak ruble. Uh, and um, uh, the the interesting thing is that in terms of oil, I mean, if you go back to um, around about 1992, 93, which is the earliest I can go back on IMF figures, um, the price of oil in rubles was the equivalent of around about um, uh, seven or eight rubles a barrel. Now, the reason it's seven or eight rubles a barrel was that in 1998, um, they uh, had a currency reduction so that so that um, a thousand rubles suddenly became one ruble. So if you work that back, you know, you're looking at about seven and a half rubles a barrel. Now it's about seven, seven, seven and a half thousand. I mean, this is, you know, this is um, or oh, eight thousand. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's about eight thousand uh, rubles a barrel. So that shows you how much the ruble has really lost over that period of time. And uh, what they're now doing is they're now deliberately pushing up um, oil prices uh, and also distillate prices against the West. Uh, that's going to backfire, I'm afraid, on the ruble more than it backfires on the dollar, unless they actually do something about securing the value of ruble credit uh, by introducing a gold standard. So I think that the pressures for Russia to introduce a gold standard, which I always thought was plan B on the BRICS story, I think that's mounting. To give you an idea, um, uh, Saudi Arabia which shares a very similar view on gold, incidentally, and I think would support a move towards gold standards. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia cut production um, 
by uh, 1.3 million barrels a day. Um, and that was recently, that was last month. And um, furthermore, as far as the Russians are concerned, they've they've uh, shut down or stopped exporting quite a lot of uh, heating oil and also diesel. Heating oil and diesel are sort of more or less the same thing. You know, one's a heating oil is a bit rougher than, than diesel, as it were. Um, and uh, so this is why the price of heating oil ahead of the winter has been shooting up. I mean, it's corrected a little bit uh, today as we speak, but, um, and this is why diesel, and diesel propels about 95% of European logistics. I mean, diesel trucks, diesel trains, diesel everything, diesel ships. Um, so, you know, the, the effects, if you like, of higher diesel prices is going to work all the way through everything in the economy. I mean, in the Eurozone economy, that's for sure, and our economy. And the, the, the effect of that, I think, is um, we're going to see a resurgence of inflation if we talk about prices again, uh, which is going to make life for the Fed and the ECB and all the rest of it. Seeing the problems with, um, you know, bond yields rising and, uh, you know, banks are going to start falling over again. And, all you know, I mean, you can this is a scenario we could go on and on and on saying, you know, it's going to crash because of this or it might crash because of that or whatever. There are all these things happening. Um, and I can just see that uh, this is just going to um, come into a crisis, I think, in the next few months. It's bound to. It's absolutely bound to. Well, with that, um, as we come into the close of this, what, what things are you looking at? So there's a lot of things we could look at. U.S. 10 years, Japanese bonds, price of gold, dollar. This. What do you What do you personally look at? You wake up in the morning, you want to know what's going on. Um, what markets are you looking at? Well, obviously, currency markets, because that's the root of of, um, of, of the crisis, um, the ending of the fiat era, if you like. Uh, and um, it's not that gold goes up. No, that's you know, that hasn't actually, um, you know, that just goes sideways. It's fiat currencies going down. Now, uh, I know a lot of um, traders, uh, you know, uh, trading in, in US dollars sort of think that the you know, the gold price has gone into the doldrums and, you know, it's it's um, very disappointing and all the rest of it. Well, I'd say two things. The first thing I would say is that in other currencies, actually, it's very, very close to all time highs, if not actually making all time highs. Uh, and the second thing I would say is that um, during uh, yeah, a crisis, as the crisis develops, you find that people move out of gold because of rising interest rates. But when rising interest rates really do bring um, systemic issues to the fore, at that point, people start moving out of dollars and start moving into gold. And I think we're seeing something like that. I mean, this is what happened back in the, uh, uh, you know, in, in the Lehman crisis. Um, uh, ahead of that, you had rising interest rates, you had the, uh, you know, the, 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 the all these um, sort of funny um, uh, uh, vehicles, um, you know, property, um, you know, uh, uh, mortgages and all the rest of it, prepackaged and all the rest, all that, you know, was getting, beginning to collapse. Um, at that time, gold went down from about $1,000 down to around about, um, I think, $750. Lehman failed. The first thing that happened was gold went down to 680 And then it started going up. So this fits in with a pattern. 
that you know you get rising interest rates ahead of the crisis um gold suffers from that because everybody thinks in terms of the yield on gold is less than two percent the yield on dollars is five six seven whatever it is um but when the crisis hits you just don't want to be in any credit basically you want to get out of credit and at that stage you see the gold price rising when actually what's happening is the value of credit dollars is falling it's not the gold is rising eventually gold does rise but only that that only happens when everybody begins to panic into it and that's really when the fiat currencies finally die and um you know, I've, one of the things I've quoted many, many times was an excerpt from a, a book written by Stefan Zweig, who's a very famous uh, Austrian author um, in his autobiography covering the time of uh, the currency's collapse in Europe. Uh, he wrote that, um, uh, you know, in, in, in 1923, you could have bought uh, a six bedroom house in a swanky part of Berlin for one hundred dollars. What was $100? It was slightly less than five ounces of gold at 20.67. So this is, you know, that's what happens. The, the, you know, while you've got a collapse in the paper currency, towards the end, you find that the purchasing power of gold actually rises very, very substantially. Um, it's part of the distortion of the whole thing as it happens. Um, we're a long way from that. But what it does tell us is that what you should do, coming back to your question, is, is not to speculate in gold the answer is you hoard it because you will eventually spend it uh, and that is the whole point now if let us say by some miracle um we all go back onto a gold standard and all the rest of it now if that becomes credible then at that stage you get out of gold and you get back into paper credit because you know you don't end up spending gold really i mean you, you don't go down to the local shop and you know with with, with a gold coin and say <laughs> <laughs> you know, even though it may be legal tender, uh, that's not what you do. Um, you know, you do all your transactions basically on a credit card or whatever, or whatever. as long as that's backed by gold and the price, the value of it is tied completely to gold. Then you've got confidence in credit and you don't have to hold gold. And it was for this reason, actually, that Swiss nationals really didn't really bother holding holding gold because they trusted their central bank to hold gold and back the Swiss franc on their behalf. Of course, that's changed a bit now, I have to say. <laughs> but, you know, this is, it's, you know, these are the sort of things which I think you have to consider. And um, on the investment theme, I mean, I don't give investment advice, by the way. We've got to be very careful about that in this country. I, yes, um, I, I don't either, <laughs> for some no, reasons. No, absolutely. <laughs> but um, I think that, um, you know, one sector which is just, nobody's got is 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 um you know the extractive industries i mean not just gold silver other metals um and so on now i do think that while we're going to hell in a handcart um china and russia between them have actually got a plan which um means that not only will they survive what we're doing to ourselves uh, but as well as that um they will continue to have demand for um you know 
all the raw materials, uh, all the commodities um, that are required basically to um, improve the condition of Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, which is really, you know, it's the Shanghai Corporation Organization members. It's also BRICS, the enlarged BRICS, which is, I mean, and Russia becomes um, president, incidentally, of BRICS in January. So um, I reckon they're going to add quite a lot to, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, the BRICS membership while they're there. They'll control the agenda. And I think this gold story is going to come up again, not just because um, we're forcing it by our own actions, um, but I think that Russia will go in that direction. And I think also that the Saudis are very, very keen uh, to ensure that their payment is in gold. And, um, you know, we've heard stories that uh, as far as they're concerned, the reason they'll accept uh, Yuan is they can convert it into gold on the Shanghai uh, Gold Exchange or the, you know, the international version of it. So, I, you know, whether that happens or not, we'll see. Um, so I think, Chris, in summary, these are very, very interesting times. Very interesting times indeed. But in the Chinese sense. <laughs> very well said. So, <laughs> Alistair, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to follow you, and I know they do, um, where do they follow you in your work? Uh, well, I write a... Um, a weekly insight article for gold money so it appears on their website um we also own um shift gold and at the moment um my article appears on their website first on thursday and it then appears on the gold money site um i think like following monday or something like that um, but you can get on an email list uh, from gold money and they'll send it to you when it's up uh, which will save you having to look for it. And I also do a market report, um, which at the moment goes on to Shift Gold, and that's every Friday. Basically, it's a summary of what's happened during the week and, um, you know, the things that may be relevant looking forward just a little bit from there. So um, that's what I do. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's uh, uh, such a pleasure catching up with you again. And I've got a lot to think about here. Um, but... Uh, as somebody, this is not investment advice. I am irresponsibly long gold and silver. Uh, and I've been that way since about 2002. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, um, the protection hasn't been needed yet. <laughs> I mean, you know, most people thankfully. would say, most people would say, gosh, you bought it in 2002. You're sitting on a good profit. That's the wrong way to look at it, as we've just said. <laughs> you still got your protection. <laughs> I do. Unlike, I do. And unlike uh, insurance premiums, uh, which you could equate this with, um, the great thing is that you still possess the premium. Correct. And, and uh, I am a hoarder, uh, not a disorder. But there will come a day. There will yeah, come a day exactly. um, when exactly. when that time is. But the, it'll have to be the circumstances will have to be a little different. So with that, Alistair, thank you so much for your time today. Can't wait to do this again at some point. Um, yeah, be well, Chris. That's very much my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me on. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can 
answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle. So it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.